0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Once again, we are in Jeremiah, and today brings us to Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30, beginning a section whereby... We have a block of chapters, 30 through 33, that constitute uh, a book of consolation that likely was published separately and published independently before it was then later incorporated within a larger volume that we have today as the book of Jeremiah. But before the book of Jeremiah was added to the canon of Scripture, a book of consolation was published and disseminated to uh, the people of Jerusalem at this time. And it was intended to be a book of great comfort and great hope. Uh, unfortunately, the only people that responded to such a thing were no longer in Jerusalem. They were already captive in uh, in living in Babylon. But be that as it may. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Before we begin our study of Jeremiah chapter 30 this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Uh, we'll, in fact, pray twice, uh, once for the message and once for the slideshow and uh, we'll see if the computer wants to cooperate. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your truth, rejoicing in the blessings that we have to assemble together, the grace provision that you have made possible for us to come together to study to show ourselves approved we thank you for a local church where the word of god is priority number one i thank you for brothers and sisters that share the same priority that share the same urgency and that share the commitment father to not only study to show themselves approved but to do so as workmen father we are living out our faith in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And our desire, Father, is to be salt and light, to be a benefit to our community, to our nation. Father, uh, our nation is in our prayers. That Our nation is in your hands. And so we thank you for the message of Isaiah, the message of J- Jeremiah, and uh, whichever one we need to apply, Father, in the coming days, you're equipping us with both. And I thank you for that. In Jesus Christ's name we do pray. Amen. All right, Jeremiah's Book of Consolation. It is written as a blessing for difficult days, both contemporary and eschatological. This Book of Consolation, by the way, comprises these four chapters, 30 through 33. All right, it's a separate subsection within the overall book of Jeremiah, as we understand it. Uh, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. And that gets our attention, right? Because we want to say, well, no kidding, what have I been doing for these 29 chapters, right? Um, And yet it's not as obvious and it's not as intuitive, particularly with a book like Jeremiah that is in a scattered sequence anyway, as it relates to uh, when he delivered many of these messages and when some of these sermons were then compiled and what it was that led him to put the uh, book in the order as we have it today. But here we do have specific instructions for the dissemination of a printed uh, treatise, a, a book or a scroll, as it were, that is to be disseminated to his contemporaries, to his peers, and is to, to hit the presses and be spread immediately. It's not going to wait until the, the canonicity stage whereby all the chapters are compiled and put in the order in which they are placed. And uh, we find this interesting, all right? Let me get verses 2 and 3 here. Uh, verse 3 says, For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land that I gave their forefathers, and they shall possess it. So this is the backdrop then for the writing of this book. And uh, the Lord gives specific instructions for the writing of this book all right, specifically this subset of the larger book that we've been studying now for, for 30 weeks. And the context here is the promise of restoration. Interestingly enough, for the northern kingdom that had been swept away 150 years ago to the southern kingdom that's on the verge of being swept away, and that will be taken away by the Babylonians in a very short time from, uh, from the time Jeremiah is writing this. This is the seventh out of 15 days are coming messages. And uh, we've commented upon it in the past. I made kind of a big deal of it in chapter 7. Uh, it came up again in chapter 9, chapter 16. Um, you see the, the references there. The same uh, scripture references I gave in each of these chapters as we encountered it. But days are coming messages. Days are coming messages. And it's almost a tagline for the prophet Jeremiah. Behold, days are coming. All right, And uh, as such, it's kind of interesting because uh, in most of Jeremiah's messages, we're talking about eschatology. We're talking about end times and the second advent of Jesus Christ, things that are still in 2016 A.D., days are coming. They're, they're still unfulfilled and they're yet future from our perspective as creatures of time, uh, they're not past in their fulfillment, they're still future in their as yet to be fulfilled reality. But here though, this promise of restoration and days are coming, we want to understand that there is both a near and a far fulfillment, that there is a near fulfillment in Jerusalem's immediate capture. It's happening uh, very quickly. And then 70 years from then, the uh, Zen returnings of Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, there will be a returning when they will be allowed to come back after 70 years. But even that, while it is a, a promise, and I'm sure they're thankful for it, it is not the promise. And it is not the greatest of promises. And it has—it uh, is—it it is a foreshadowing of the greater regathering that we need to study as students of prophecy and what Israel needs to study in terms of their own uh, messianic expectations. And so hopefully today's chapter is going to be important for us. And I really want us to hit this hard and hit this uh, chapter uh, as well as we can today and do ourselves a favor for next week. Because uh, Jeremiah 31 is, is deep, and you get into the New Covenant, and you get into all the things of Jeremiah 31, and we're hitting it on a Communion Sunday next week, in, in, which is our shortest of all of our Sundays in this uh, particular format. So we do want to hit it as hard as we can here. Um, try to avoid some kind of confusion, though, in your reading, because this is not the only book of consolation in the Scriptures, that um, Isaiah also has a book of consolation. And uh, if you're reading some of the rabbinic traditions and some of the um, other uh, commentaries, for example, Midrash and some other Jewish commentaries, uh, it is uh, noteworthy that uh, in the book of Isaiah you've got a book of consolation, basically the second half of the book, verses, chapters 40 through, uh, through 66. Um, and then, of course, Jeremiah, right here, these four chapters in the middle of Jeremiah. And each one has carried this label through the years. And it's kind of curious to me, and I wonder, I don't know how the answer but I wonder, did the rabbis ever fight about which, uh, which book of consolation was, was the real book of consolation? <laughs> I don't know. Um, but both Isaiah has one and Jeremiah has one. And interestingly enough, it was these chapters, whereby the rabbis, whereby the the the, uh, the the Bible teachers and those the scribes and Pharisees, the people that really locked in on on prophetic study, on Bible study. They locked in on these chapters because they knew how significant these chapters are. And these are the chapters, by the way, that promise the new covenant for Israel, the coming new covenant. And so uh, both Isaiah and Jeremiah will have what's commonly referred to as a book of consolation within them. Uh, notably, both Isaiah and Jeremiah promise a coming new covenant. And we have uh, uh, references to this in Isaiah forty-two six. And Isaiah 49:8. All of these are references. By the way, I'm not going to take the time to go through because we we did these, we did these in our Isaiah study, 54:10 uh, and 55:3. All right, remember um, these these great promises of a coming new covenant. And they're already under a covenant. They're under the Abrahamic covenant, but then they're under a conditional covenant as well with the law of Moses. And something has to happen to do away with that conditional covenant in terms of the law of Moses. Because uh, the unconditional covenant of Abraham and the unconditional covenant that's promised to them in the new covenant is so much greater than any expectations that they could possibly dream of in the conditional covenant under Moses. By the way, the conditional covenant which they broke on day one. (laughs) And they've consistently broken throughout uh, their Old Testament history. So uh, Isaiah 54,10, Isaiah 55,3, 59, 21, 61, 8 those are all the Isaiah references there to the new covenant. And then what we have coming up in the next few weeks, 31, 31, as well as verses 32 and 33 of that same context. And then in Jeremiah 32, we've got Jeremiah 32:40. And so promises of a coming covenant, a covenant which will be made, a covenant that has not been made yet but it will be made. The blood of that covenant has been shed, but the blood, uh, but the, the covenant itself has not been made and cannot be made until the second advent of Jesus Christ, until he returns and he applies that blood to the covenant nation of Israel. So stay tuned. We want to be clear on this. But as we pay attention to these early verses, verses 1, 2, and 3, very clearly, we have Israel and Judah. I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah. Let's be very clear on this. Uh, these messages have nothing to do with the church. The church is not party to the new covenant. We are not objects of the new covenant. The new covenant is with Israel and Judah. And this will be reinforced again next week in Jeremiah thirty one, thirty one. All right. And we're going to talk about and there's a lot of confusion and among among well meaning Uh, people who should know better but they apply the new covenant to the church they even name churches after you know grace covenant and whatnot but the new covenant is with israel with israel and with judah we are ministers we are servants of that new covenant being prepared in the church age for our role with christ in the millennium we want to be clear on that as well christ is the mediator of that new covenant we are in christ as servants or deacons of that new covenant and uh we'll have more to say as we uh, As we deal with that, all right, verse four, now these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. for thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. all right, this message is going to hurt by the way, okay. This is, I already see the men are squirming. The, uh, this, this, this hurts. The, the, just the concept of, of a man trying to birth a baby. And he's not equipped to do that. All right? So imagine how painful this is going to be. The, the metaphor here is how the Lord describes the tribulation of Israel the great and terrible day of the Lord, the time of Jacob's trouble. And the tribulation of Israel that is promised as, as necessary for God's dealings with his people in order to humble them. Anything short of this will fall short in accomplishing God's objectives to humble his people. And so as we look at it here, the restoration of Israel and Judah will be achieved through a unique time of divine discipline. Unique. There is nothing like it ever before or ever since. And these, uh, these verses make this, I think, crystal clear, absolutely undeniable. So, um, back to the, uh, the male, pregnant male here. Uh, Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? <laughs> well, I can tell you why. Because Jeremiah is asking these loaded questions and people are getting scared. And I suspect this was literal. I take everything I can literally. And, uh, and since Yahweh informed or ordered Jacob, uh, Jeremiah to start asking these questions, I think he started doing so. He started going all over Jerusalem asking this question and making everybody nervous and uh, getting this particular response. Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. It is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. And there's so much study that goes into this, and so much goes all the way back to to Genesis and the naming of Jacob and the renaming of Israel. All right, And both come into view. Both come into view in this chapter. Both come into view in the coming chapters. Uh, You'll notice when he's told to fear not, When we get down to verse 10, it's fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, and do not be dismayed, O Israel. And so we have both, the birth name and the covenant name, the birth name and the promise name that are given, all right, as it relates to Israel wrestling with God and the struggles of Israel with God and with man. And uh, to me, it's a beautiful thing to study these doctrines through and to have a very clear Israelology To understand what God was doing when he took one race and set them apart. When he magnified one nation and put them in the midst of all the other earthly nations. And when he pronounced his blessings upon them. It is vital that we recognize what their role was and what their role will be. Because God's not done with them. They will have this role again as soon as the church is complete. They will have this role in the tribulation. They will have this role in the millennium. They will have this role for a thousand generations in the new heavens and on the new earth. The role of Israel as the covenant earthly nation becomes uh, important for us to study. All right, at last, for the day is great. There is none like it. It is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. So we have a salvation here that we need to recognize is different. From our salvation when we say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Alright? We use salvation. The Bible uses salvation in a variety of contexts. And they're all they're not all evangelistic as we think of evangelistic. Okay? They're all good news, but they're they're not the same as in terms of you talking to an unbeliever about not going to hell. Alright? That's that's one thing. But being saved in terms of being delivered, in terms of a covenant nation being brought into their promised kingdom, that also is referenced as a salvation. Okay? Here and in many places. And if you ever want to you know, work through those issues, you will be very edified to work through the, every one of these concepts. And you're going to find in particular that the, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Guess what? <laughs> That's dealing with this. That's dealing with Israel surviving the tribulation. That's dealing with the nation, the Jewish nation, that has to endure to the end of hell on earth, of the, the abyss being unleashed and demons flooding this place, and Antichrist and the mark of the beast and all this horrible stuff. And the one who endures to the end, see, has everything to do with the Jewish people trying to be, you know, the, the, the Antichrist trying to exterminate the Jewish people. <laughs> And it has nothing to do with anyone that you're face-to-face with uh, that's afraid because of bad theology that they might lose their salvation. All right? And and that's the, that's the tragedy of it all, is that how many people today are horrified with an Arminian theology that if they don't work hard to stay saved, then they won't stay saved and they'll lose their salvation and they're going to die and go to hell. And because of verses like, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And they get confused, and they get uh, misapplied, and they get scared. All right. The time of Jacob's trouble, as it centers on God's dealings with the Jewish people. This is a unique time. This is the time of Jacob's trouble. Not the church's trouble, not the bride of Christ's trouble, not Austin Bible Church's trouble, not my trouble. Okay, Jacob's trouble, the covenant nation, the earthly nation, Earthly descendants. Remember, Jacob is the birth name, the earthly name. As it centers on God's dealings with the Jewish people. And so so vital, I think, when we turn over to Daniel chapter 9, we see similar language, and we see um, the recognition of this, that when we're dealing with the Hebrew prophets, the church is a mystery. The church is not known in the Old Testament. And so to try to read the church into it, uh, is is fraught with impossible dangers in every instance. But these most of all, these most of all, you know, when God has a judgment, who does he inflict the judgment on? He inflicts the judgment on the people for whom the judgment is designed, <laughs> right? So uh, the judgment on Israel, the judgment on, on Judah, And then the restoration of them uh, as a covenant people and the restoration of them into the land of promise. This is specifically within the parameters of of what God has designed it for. If it's not our judgment, do we have to worry about it? Is it something we should lose sleep over? Okay? Like the, the, the judgment of the flood or the judgment on Jericho or the judgment on Nineveh or pick a judgment. Why would we try to put ourselves into the tribulation? It's not our judgment. And it is just as ludicrous. I'm using that word a lot today. It's just as stupid as being all worked up about Noah's flood or Jericho or whatever, and say, well, you say, well, those were in the past. I don't have to worry about things in the past. Tribulation is still future. That's why I'm scared. Well, don't be scared. Yes, it's future, but it's not our judgment. The church is not destined for wrath. We are not designed for judgment. We were not a party to the first sixty-nine sevens. Why do we have a part in, in, in number seventy? And so in Daniel chapter 9, I know the slide says verses 24 through 27, but if I back up a little bit, there is uh, a context for this, All the whole chapter of Daniel chapter 9. But uh, I'll just spell out for you here, um, maybe just a few early verses. Uh, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And so here it is. Daniel's in captivity, but he's got access to the book of Jeremiah. He has access to a book that all the liberals today tell you wasn't written until the Maccabean era. Okay? And then they tell you Daniel wasn't written until the Maccabean era. And all these lies doesn't add up. He had the book of Jeremiah in his, time, in his lifetime. And it was a huge encouragement to him. And so he begins to give attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer. And his whole prayer is predicated upon God's faithfulness to the Jewish nation. Nothing in this chapter has anything remotely to do with you and I today in the body of Christ. And so then the answer that comes to him, Gabriel comes But I want you to see something, because as he ends his prayer, as he ends his prayer with, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, listen and take action. He is calling out here a prayer that is very much compatible with, um, O Lord, save, we beseech thee. Very much compatible with what Israel has to say before Christ can come back at Second Advent. All right? And uh, aspects that we'll see... um, Shortly. Listen and take action for your own sake, O my God. Do not delay. This is Daniel 9 19. Because your city and your people are called by your name. Your city, your people, your name. All of this is grounded in the Old Testament. All of this is Israel in the Old Testament. That's why it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. It is not for the church. We are a heavenly people, not an earthly people. Uh, Our city, we have a heavenly Jerusalem that has not yet been manifest. Uh, Nothing here can possibly relate to the church. And so then Gabriel comes to him and he gets uh, an answer to his prayers. In verses 20 through 23 and then now we have the content. Verse 24, 77's have been decreed for your people and your holy city. So Daniel's people are the Jews, and the the Jews' holy city is Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. We have all of those objectives there, and it takes 77s to make them happen, and we've only finished 69 of the 77s. As it stands right now, 69 of those sevens were complete when Jesus died on the cross. But the 70th seven was never achieved. The 70th seven is still future. That's the coming tribulation of Israel. That's the time of Jacob's trouble that we're seeing today. The coming tribulation that has to follow the rapture of the church. It can't start today. And by the way, if the rapture happens today, it doesn't have to start first thing tomorrow morning. It starts, as we'll see here, when a covenant gets signed. So you are to know and discern, this is Daniel 9.25, that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven and sixty-two. Seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. And you read... Ezra and Nehemiah, and you see the fulfillment of this. You see the decree that gets issued. You see the rebuilding. Then after the 62, which is after the 7, so it's after the 69, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And then this is clearly, this is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. And the calendar for this was spelled out. I believe to the very day that we can track the sixty-nine sevens to the very day, beginning with the, the issuing of the decree and culminating with uh, riding into Jerusalem humbly on a colt, Palm Monday of 33 AD. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, Desolations are determined. And so we have the destruction of Jerusalem, which history tells us happened in 70 AD. The Roman uh, general, later emperor Titus, uh, destroys Jerusalem. And we have fulfillment here. But you'll notice it's not during week 70, it's after week 69. Because we don't get to week 70 until verse 27. And he, the prince who is to come, what we call Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. With the many. The nation of Israel has to be a population in the land. They have to be a a political entity. All right. In order for this verse to be fulfilled. And that's been the case uh, now for going on, what, 60 years? Okay. Just past 60 years that there is now a government, there is a Jewish uh, political entity in their land. But the covenant they signed, the treaty they signed, if you will, is with Antichrist, and I find it significant, it's with the many. And here we are living in the day and age of uh, majority rules. Here we are living in the day and age of, of uh, democracy and voting and, and uh, popular opinion and, and whatnot. So uh, he makes a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he puts a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. That's why we divide the tribulation into two halves, the first half and the second half, the three and a half years each, 42 months each. And he puts a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Desolate. All right, now, is the church in any of that? (laughs) Is the church in, no, the destruction, see, the judgment, the wrath. We had no part of the first 69 sevens. We have no part of the 70th seven. It is not our function. It is not our our place. All right. We're told in verse, uh, let me get back to Jeremiah now. That there's nothing like it. There is none like it. It is unique. In, in verse 7 of Jeremiah 30. It is a unique time unlike any before or ever again. This expression comes back in Daniel. It comes back in the Olivet Discourse. Jesus references this when He's preaching. In Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22. But before we get to that, we've got Daniel. Daniel 12.1, where we're told that this is a unique day. Now, how many unique days can you have, <laughs> okay, that are described this way? Again and again and again, when we have the unique God described, he is the one and only, he is the I am, he is the unique. And it doesn't matter how, if there's a hundred passages that define the unique, it's the same one. Because by definition, there's only one. There's only one God. There's only one tribulation. There's only one day of the wrath of God, the great and terrible day of the Lord. All right? There's only one. Nothing like it. If there were two that were kind of close, then when the second one comes, we could describe it and say, it was like that first one, only worse. Or this is the second worst that you'll ever have. Boy, just wait till the biggie shows up. (laughs) All right? We don't have language like that. We have the absolute language of the maximum unthinkable extreme And this is the time of Jacob's trouble. You know, you thought the Holocaust was bad? Mm Mm-mm. Okay. Um, Daniel 12. I should have stayed in Daniel. I was just there, would not I? Daniel chapter 12. Now at that time, at the end of chapter 11, we have uh, some war that's happening here with Antichrist and the king of the north and king of the south. And then he camps in the Holy Land. And he's even more angry because, it says in 1144, rumors from the east and the north will disturb him. And he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. And this is, uh, in, in so many ways, this is what happens when Satan's master plan for peace falls apart. And the phony Antichrist is exposed as being a phony. He's not a prince of peace at all. He's a fraud and he's uh, responsible for more bloodshed than any human or Nephilim in history. And so he pitches the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. And yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. So that's how chapter 11 ends, with a description of the tribulation, with a description of Antichrist and the war. we call the Armageddon campaign. All right. Then chapter 12, at that time, all right, are we clear on the context here? (laughs) It's not church age. At that time, Michael, the great prince, New Testament calls him the archangel, who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. All right. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found, written in the book, will be saved or will be rescued. Okay? And all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And again, it's a tribulational reference for the rescuing of the Jewish people and the deliverance into the coming kingdom. Matthew 24, Jesus speaks of this. Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22. And I don't know. I mean, why do so many people mess this up? Why do they try to shove the church in here? Well, I think in large respect, because they've got some they've got some um, prejudice. their theology is is one replacement anyway. They're not looking for any future for Israel to start with, and so uh, they would be confused on that level. But then I think they get confused for other reasons. But Jesus says it's still coming matthew twenty four verses twenty one and twenty two there will be, okay? And if you want a, a further context on that, um, verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, <laughs> okay? So what we just read in Daniel chapter 7 about stopping the grain offerings and betraying the treaty and the, the midpoint of the tribulation and all that, what we just studied is what Jesus says is the warning point for them to to, to flee. In other words, it, it's future from Jesus' lifetime. It's future from 33 AD when he speaks this. And anyone that tries to tell you that, oh, it's all the past, oh, it's all fulfilled, oh, it was all done with Antiochus Epiphanes in the 2nd century BC, uh, I'm going to trust Jesus instead of those so-called experts. Okay. Because uh, this abomination of desolation has not yet made its appearance. Jesus says it's future. So, um, it's coming. And when it comes, run. Run fast. Run as fast as you can. Don't stop long enough to grab a coat. Don't even go down into the house. If you're on the roof, just jump off the roof and keep running. Okay? And uh, don't stop for a coat. Don't stop for anything. Don't turn back to get anything. And uh, hope you're not pregnant or nursing babies because you don't run so fast. <laughs> All right. There will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. It is a one time only event, never again. See, never again. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. I find it fascinating how fearful the world is that, oh, we're going to kill everybody. Oh, we're going to destroy the world. We can't. Even if we wanted to, God wouldn't let it happen. And even if we could, even if we wanted to, and even if we could, God would not allow it. Here is the one time in human history that human extinction is remotely possible because of the, I believe, because the unrestrained, unleashed, satanic, permissive will has the potential to exterminate human life, but God doesn't let it. So unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. The elect, of course, the covenant nation of Israel, the Old Testament election of Israel. So, a unique day. Never before, never again. You know, once once God does this, by the way, Israel becomes repentant true Israel becomes repentant. They look upon him whom they pierced and they cry out for their Savior. And never again does Israel plunge into apostasy. I find it fascinating how after a thousand years of the millennial reign, all the Gentiles are gathered around Jesus to demand his abdication. But what's the one nation that stays faithful? Israel. Can you believe it? (laughs) Okay. Israel is faithful. At the Gog Magog rebellion in Revelation 20, while all the other nations have Jerusalem surrounded. So it is a unique time. The restoration is going to be a physical restoration and a spiritual restoration to the Lord. As we look at this in verses 8 through 11, we see it's not just a physical relocation from Babylon to Jerusalem. It is a spiritual restoration as well. Which is why we know that the Zen returnings are not uh, the fulfillment of this. You're, from, you're familiar with what I abbreviate as Zen? The Zen returnings? Z-E-N stands for Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. Okay, It's an acronym. It has nothing to do with Buddhism. Okay? The Zen Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah returnings In three waves, in three waves, Jewish people made the return from Babylon to, to Jerusalem. And sadly, uh, as they returned, uh, they were more temporally minded than spiritually minded. They didn't finish the temple right away. They got sidetracked with their own fields and their own properties. And uh, they end up marrying unbelievers and foreign women, and they end up, it's not a, a huge spiritual time at all. There's a lot of judgment that happens, and Ezra has to lead them through a repentance and, and uh, some different things. Not so for the tribulation. Okay, The ones who return, the ones who uh, God deals with at Armageddon, it's real. It is a national repentance for those who accept Christ as their Savior. So the um, spiritual circumstances that are described here, It shall come about, this is verses 8 through 11, it shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck, and I will tear off their bonds, and strangers will no longer make them their slaves. But they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. This is a prophesied Messiah, the son of David, but it's also a resurrected literal David. We'll talk about that also. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, and do not be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity. And Jacob will return and will be quiet and at ease and no one will make him afraid. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you. For I will destroy you. I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you. Only I will not destroy you completely but I will chasten you justly and will by no means leave you unpunished. All right, judgment begins with the house of the Lord and the tribulation is, first of all, judgment upon Israel and secondarily, all the nations to which the Jewish people have been scattered worldwide. So it is a spiritual restoration as well as a physical restoration. And this is what we understand. This is what we come to with respect to Psalm 118 with respect to Zechariah twelve, with respect to Matthew twenty three thirty nine. The recognition that there needs to be a spiritual revival. It didn't happen in first Advent. <laughs> Could have. But the only ones singing Hosanna in first Advent were the children on Palm Monday. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, the political leaders, they wanted no part of that. They rejected Jesus of Nazareth. They rejected their Messiah. They, uh, oh, you know, several of them would have been happy to destroy Rome, okay? Uh, You know, zealots and others, I mean, they would have been, you know, peachy and delighted. Yeah, let's get rid of Rome. But the idea of repenting for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right. Psalm 118. Hopefully we're familiar with this. Psalm 118. And there's a a long stretch from verses 22 through 29, but one key verse in this has to be recited before the second advent of Jesus Christ. Psalm 118. Aim for the big long chapter and then back up. Beautiful psalm. (laughs) <laughs> wow. Well, we've got a gate that's opening. Verse 19 says, uh, Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. All right, verse 22, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone of the And here's the rejection of Jesus Christ. What they rejected is their only salvation. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We quote that verse a lot, but it applies to first Advent, and then it applies to second Advent. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. And this is where we get Hosanna. Hosanna is the Aramaic for do save. Do save, we beseech you. We beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, I give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Now this could have been fulfilled had Israel accepted their Messiah. Sadly, like I say, only the children sang the hosannas and they never got anywhere beyond that. The religious leaders didn't get that far. They rejected their Messiah. And so Jesus calls them on it. In Matthew 23, he says, Your house is being left to you desolate. Matthew 23, 39. Verse 37 says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. What a reputation. All right. And I laugh. This, I laugh because of this verse. And all of his brothers in John 7 were saying, you know, get out of Galilee, go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's where a prophet can make it big time and get famous. <laughs> no, Jerusalem's where prophets go to die. They, they, that's where they stone the real prophets. All right. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Right now in Galatians, we're studying compulsion versus free will. All right, this is key. They were unwilling. So what's the consequence? God just sovereignly forces their volition, or what does he do? He applies consequences, doesn't he? Because we reap what we sow. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Now notice it's not a permanent desolation. Notice it's not complete. Notice it's not replacement theology. He doesn't say, I'm done with you. I'm going to create a church now and replace Israel with a church. No, It's it's a temporary until. Until I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say. And what do we see there? It's the citation from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, Israel needs to have a national repentance and they need to get on board with the Hosanna doctrine of Psalm 118. They need to identify the Messiah. And it's going to be worse for them now because, you know, then... They could have identified their Messiah based on Scripture. Now they're going to have to identify their Messiah based on Scripture and the fact that, oh yeah, we crucified him in his first advent. (laughs) Can you imagine? The restoration is going to be a physical restoration to the land and a spiritual restoration to the Lord. And I think this concept is what drove the apostles on the day of the ascension. And they got out there to the, to the Mount of Olives and they said, okay, Lord, is now can you restore the kingdom to Israel? <coughs> okay, thinking that maybe 50 days after the cross that, uh, that, uh, or 40 days after the cross that Israel was going to say this? No, it's the second advent. It's the second advent. And it's going to take tribulation in order to humble them to do this. Nothing short of the, the Antichrist and false prophet and all the tribulation they go through. Nothing short of that would humble them to to fulfill this prophecy. Finally then in verse uh, 9 here, a resurrected David along with the greater son of David will be featured prominently once the unique tribulation is complete. And you know, you can take Jeremiah 30 and verse 9 a couple of different ways. They shall serve the Lord their God and David their king. Well, how do we understand that? What's our hermeneutic? What do, we, what do we deal with this? David their king. Is this a prophecy of the coming Messiah who will be a son of David? Yes. But could it also be literal David as well, resurrected and serving the Lord in this capacity? Well, by itself, Jeremiah 30 and verse 9 doesn't lock it in for us, but if we compare Scripture to Scripture... I think it becomes undeniable that we have a resurrected David and we have all of the kings from David to Jeconiah. They get to reign with Christ. They get to be his administrators. They get to be his princes for the for the for the coming kingdom. And this gets me excited to to preach Ezekiel again someday. <laughs> all right. Spent a lot of time on the phone. What a what a what a coincidence, right? That uh I'm prepping these slides and getting this stuff ready and gearing up for chapter 30. And uh, who should call me up last week, week before, this week? We've had like three phone calls now. Uh, But Pastor John Hintz from Tucson Bible Church. And what are we discussing? What does he want to talk about? He wants to talk about the book of Ezekiel. He wants to talk about a resurrected David. He wants to talk about animal sacrifices. And he wants to talk about all the things that uh, that can be found here in, in the book of Ezekiel. And uh, the Lord is so faithful, because <laughs> it was fresh in my thinking and not rusty in in any respect ezekiel thirty four verses twenty three and thirty and twenty four are back to back here we got these verses about David the king and David the prince, and so we 're left saying, "Well, what is it and so um Ezekiel thirty four twenty three. I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and I will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. And so here we have the language of shepherd, the language of servant, and then it's followed up with, my servant David will be prince among them. In chapter 37 of Ezekiel, verses 24 and 25, My servant David will be king over them. That's better. Kings are better than princes, aren't they? Uh, My servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. That's a whole lot better than Mosaic law, which they kept breaking over and over again. But here's kingdom law, and here's David their king, and they're keeping all these things. And they will live in their land, the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons, forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Well, what, did he get demoted between verse 24 and 25? How does this work? How can he be a king in verse 24 and a prince in verse 25? See, I believe because we have a dual reality here with the greater son of David, Jesus Christ himself, the King of kings and Lord of lords. But then what do we do with a resurrected David? Because he is resurrected, that's clear. All the Old Testament believers are resurrected on day one of the millennial kingdom. So what do you think a resurrected David is going to spend his thousand years doing? You know, poking around Jerusalem, just reliving good times, or do you think uh, he's going to get put to work? Do you think we're going to be put to work as the bride of Christ? And then in chapter 46, it's more of an illusion than an out-and-out statement, but in uh, Ezekiel 46, verses 16 through 18, uh, we have the prince and his sons. Thus says the Lord God, if the prince gives a gift out of his inheritance to any of his sons, it shall belong to his sons. It is their possession by inheritance. Okay? Now the reign of Jesus Christ from the throne is going to be different than in other cases where you've got a king and a queen and you know um, they're having babies and the, 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 the press is all over the place taking pictures of, of uh, little kids. Um, No, Jesus is resurrected. He's glorified. He's on his throne. The bride of Christ, us, we're with him. But who's the prince and the prince's sons? I believe it's Solomon and Rehoboam and Hezekiah and Josiah and all the good kings. Sons of David. Sons of the prince. And the role they will have in the coming millennium as well. All right, how are we doing? We're halfway through the chapter. (laughs) That's okay. This was the part I wanted to stress. The rest of it not saying it's not important, but my passion was to assure us of our tribulational bearings so that we know it's not for the church, it's for Israel. It's yet future. We have no part in it. When the apostle John has shown it, you know, the apostle John has shown the church and the seven lampstands and and he's shown that from the Isle of Patmos and then before he's given any clue or any visions of the coming tribulation he's actually caught up to heaven and it's from heaven that he looks down and he sees the tribulation and he writes Revelation chapter 6 through 19 comes from a heavenly perspective that's because we in the church are in heaven before we even start seeing any of this uh, tribulation unleashed upon the earth well let's look at uh, verses 12 through 17 now because there's an incurable wound. And how do you cure an incurable wound? It's a beautiful paragraph. For thus says the Lord, your wound is incurable and your injury is serious. (laughs) You know, if I'm told that something's incurable, then that second part about being serious kind of goes without saying, doesn't it? <laughs> All right? The doctor says I got some bad news. It's uh, it's incurable. It's terminal. Okay? And even worse, it's serious. <laughs> All right? But it's 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 fun because we start with an incurable wound and then we have at the end of this verse 17, I will restore you to health. I will heal you of your wounds, declares the Lord. And so we have, as bookmarks, we have the, the framing of this poem, the, fam- the framing of this message starts with, it's incurable and serious, and ends with, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cure it. I'm going to heal. See, with man, all, you know, it may not be possible, but with God, all things are possible. Understand, with the provision that God makes through Jesus Christ, what would otherwise be incurable or impossible is, is his blessing to bestow. And all of the, 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 the paradoxes that we love so much about approaching the unapproachable light or, or knowing the, the, uh, the love of Christ that surpasseth understanding or all of these other uh, aspects. No one can see God and live, but we will see him face to face. All of these contradictions are fulfilled in Christ in, in very beautiful ways. And so Jesus will fulfill this. It's incurable, of course. What's the solution to an incurable wound? How about dying and rising again from the dead? That's a pretty good solution, don't you think? Uh, To me, wow. You know, they told my mother she had a cancer for which there was no cure, but they were wrong because she's been cured. She's been delivered from that body of death. And when she takes her stand upon this earth again, we've got a grace provision, do we not? So it's a fun thing to think about. There's other doctrines here. Oh, my goodness, as I run out of time. Verse 13, there is no one to plead your cause, no healing for your sore, no recovery for you. Everybody's against you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you. For I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the punishment of a cruel one, because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous. Why do you cry out over your injury? Your pain is incurable because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous. I have done these things to you. And so they're being devoured, but being wounded by the wound of an enemy. And uh, man, this would take weeks to try to break this down. But we've got the wounds of an enemy and we've got the wounds of a friend. And Scripture talks about this. And Scripture talks about Messiah in Zechariah 13, being wounded with the wounds of a friend. So take Jeremiah 30, verse 14 as a contrast, being expressed there as the wounds of an enemy, but then also understand the wounds of a friend that Zechariah speaks of in Zechariah 13, verse 6 and verse 7. I think there's a great scope of doctrine that's connected to that how it was that he was betrayed by his brethren. You have the references in Mark three twenty-one to his brethren that told him to come back home and quit being a lunatic. And then uh, John one eleven 11, where he came to his own and his own did not receive him. And uh, John 7, 5, not even his brothers were believing in him. And the uh, the tragedy of betrayal by his own people, the wounds of a friend. And even Judas, who came and kissed him, to betray him, to take him to the cross, Jesus said, friend. (laughs) Do what you have come to do, right? Friend. Ah, Gets me every time. Finally, then verses 18 through 24, the coming kingdom will be a thankful celebration when their leader, their ruler, dares to approach Yahweh. In verses 18 through 24, we have what is necessary for Israel to be restored, somebody has to approach Yahweh. Well, who can approach Yahweh? <laughs> right? Who, who dares to approach Yahweh? This is, this is like Esther daring to stand in the presence of King Xerxes. Who's going to go stand before Yahweh? No one can ascend his holy hill. So thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwelling places. And the city will be rebuilt on its ruin, and the palace will stand on its rightful place. From them will proceed thanksgiving, and the voice of those who celebrate. There's even some dancing in this in this uh, passage here, part of the celebration. And I will multiply them, and they will not be diminished. I will also honor them, and they will not be insignificant. This is Second Advent Fulfillment. Their children also will be as formerly. Their congregation shall be established before me. I will punish all their oppressors. Notice though, their leader shall be one of them. Their ruler shall come forth from their midst. And I will bring him near. He shall approach me. For who would dare to risk his life to approach me, declares the Lord. In order for Israel to be redeemed, for their Messiah to give them a kingdom first, their Messiah has to approach Yahweh. And He has to approach Yahweh in victory. He has to come with His own blood. He has to come and ascend with the victory of His first Advent achievement. Who would dare to risk His life to approach Me, declares the Lord. You shall be My people. I will be your God. Alright. And so... Ask yourself the rhetorical question in Psalm 15 and Psalm 24. Who may ascend Yahweh's holy hill? Not us. (laughs) Not you. Not me. Not any human being. Who can ascend? Who can ascend? You know, if you encounter an unbeliever that's trying to be a good person and earn his own eternal life or work his way to heaven, here's some good verses to give him. Show them that, you know, we all have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. None of us deserves to be there. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, has not sworn deceitfully. Only Christ is qualified, and then he imputes that to us so that we can do likewise, all right? We can ascend, but only because he did. Only because he accomplished this work on our behalf. Jesus Christ ascended victoriously, Psalm 68:18. And when He ascended, you know what He did? He led captivity captive. He led a host of captives. He emptied out Sheol of every believer there. He transferred paradise from Sheol to the third heaven. And He led captivity captive when He ascended. He ascended in victory. This is what qualifies him now in Jeremiah 30 to come back and give Israel their kingdom on earth. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus Christ ascended victoriously with his own shed blood as proof of his finished work. John, I believe he did this on Sunday afternoon. I believe he did this between the morning and the evening that he ascended. This was the first of three ascensions total. That he ascended to lead captivity captive. In John 20, 17, he's telling Mary Magdalene, don't touch me, don't touch me, I've not yet ascended. And then in the evening, he's telling the disciples, go ahead and touch me. See my hands and my feet, touch here and see. That's why I believe this first ascension was that very same afternoon. That he's going to appear before the Father He's leading captivity captive. He's cleansing the temple. He's presenting his own finished work, presenting his own blood. That's Hebrews chapter 9. See, the high priest takes blood, not his own. Jesus takes his own. And he appears in the presence of God for us all, once and for all. So there's a whole doctrine there. Man, there's a whole doctrine, but I'm out of time. What do we do? All right, well... But you see, this is the basis. The blood was shed and was shed once and for all. I'm going to go one minute long and read Hebrews 9. My apologies. Uh, Hebrews 9. And understand this. The uh, high priest comes in, but he comes in with blood not his own, right? He comes in. Into the second, into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of all the people committed in ignorance. But Jesus, when the Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. He didn't go into the earthly temple. He rent the veil in two to say, hey, I'm not going in there. He ascended to the third heaven the greater more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is to say not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption man so much so much in this doctrine but because he ascends victoriously he ascends he is not qualified to bring them their kingdom And all of this in Jeremiah 30 gets us ready for Jeremiah 31. Because that coming kingdom is a kingdom under covenant, a kingdom under an eternal new covenant. And we'll deal with that next week. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your faithfulness. Father, I thank you for the deep, deep things. And I thank you for the Holy Spirit that takes us into all things, even the deep things of God. And Father, uh, we are thankful because obviously the, the blood of Christ saves each one of us. We're thankful, Father, for the, the uh, blood of Christ that uh, washes away our sins and saves us and produces our eternal life. But that's not the only thing that happened at Calvary. Human redemption, of course, is a vital work and we're thankful for it. But also, Father, the blood of the covenant, the blood that will one day be applied to the earthly nation, that also was accomplished on that day. And I pray, Father, that we uh, be able to rightly divide the word of truth and rightly distinguish with every work assignment your Son accomplished on that cross. Father, I just thank you so much. What he accomplished as a forerunner, what you expect of us, I thank you, Father, that as he promised, even greater works than these will we achieve because he goes to you. So, Father, it's a thrill. I thank you for this study. I thank you for this truth. I thank you for the blessing that we have to to walk the Christian walk day by day. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.